Thank you so much, David and Stephanie. Really appreciate you guys. It's just tremendous to be able to be here and worship with you. And uh, I'm, I'm sad that everybody else uh, isn't. Um, but uh, good morning. And uh, I want to echo David's uh, happy Mother's Day. Um, just uh, thinking Mother's Day, I don't know about you, but uh, there was a masked lady that showed up at my house this week uh, handing out flowers. So I just uh, appreciate uh, the women's ministry and all they did um, to, to uh, share the love of Jesus with all uh, moms and, and women in our church. Thankful for you guys. I'm thankful, for, uh, thankful to God for my mom. Um, my mom was uh, a critical part of, of me coming to know Jesus and, and growing up in, a, in a, a believing home. And I'm very thankful for that. Do not take that uh, for granted for one second. Mom, I love you, and thank you so much. Uh, as we celebrate moms, uh, it's, uh, it's wonderful that we have, uh, that God uses moms not only to give us physical life, um, but he can use moms to give us spiritual life as well. And thank, thank the Lord for uh, his work through my mom. In uh, that way, moms are an image of God uh, in our lives as they point us to Christ. <coughs> um, also wanted to, uh, to acknowledge that there are some among us who have lost moms and dads in, in the recent past. And uh, just pray, uh, we're praying for you guys, praying that the comfort of God uh, would be upon you uh, during this Mother's Day as you uh, maybe grieve uh, the loss of your mom or dad. Uh, we did have one family who lost uh, a beloved dad uh, this past week to, to the coronavirus, and our prayers uh, go out to them. Uh, and... You know, as we're just looking around the country and just kind of the, the craziness that's going on, um, many deaths, much sickness, of course. Uh, we also see um, poverty. We see injustice. So we see evils, both natural and man-made. And uh, this morning, we are here, I'm in full knowledge of these evils, we are here to turn our eyes to Jesus. Uh, we are here uh, to talk about the ultimate answer to all of our problems, that is Jesus. I am here to tell you how awesome Jesus is. And that's really what this sermon is going to be about, and I hope that it speaks to you. It did speak to me as I looked at Mark chapter 2 this week and, and prepared for this sermon. Um, I was reviewing uh, last week's sermon, uh, and I'm sort of going to pick, off, pick up where uh, Mark Harrigan left off, thankful to him for his wonderful introduction to the book of Mark. And he said it multiple times, Jesus is God. And that's going to come across in this sermon as well. So as we uh, now get into God's Word, I'm going to open us up in prayer, and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your Word. We thank you for the truths that are in it. We thank you how those truths uh, change our lives, change our perspectives, and change our hearts. We thank you for your Spirit, which opens your Word to us and, and is at work in our hearts to, to open our eyes, to understand you, to know you, and to bring us closer to you. We just pray that your spirit would be at work this morning now as we look into the Gospel of Mark. Uh, guide my words, help me to speak clearly and uh, energetically, and I uh, just gu guide hearts that are listening, that they would hear what you have to say, not, not what I have to say, but what you have to say in your word, and uh, glorify you in heaven. And we just uh, commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of the sermon this morning is The Old the new and the only and true. The old, the new, and the only and true. 
If you haven't already, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. And I'm going to tell you about the solar system of Mark chapter 2. The solar system of Mark chapter 2. In a minute, we're going to read verses 21 and 22. These two verses, seems to me, are like the sun of chapter 2. They are the central point about which the entire chapter revolves. The remainder of the chapter can be divided up into three planets. On planet number one, Jesus heals a paralytic. That's verses 1 through 13. On planet number two, we hear about Jesus' social interactions. We hear about who he kept company with, who he ate with, and how often he ate. That's in verses 14 through 20. On the last planet, that's planet number three, verses 23 through 28, Jesus explains his position on the Sabbath and on keeping the Sabbath. So this morning, we're going to do some interplanetary travel. We're going to hop among these planets and we're going to study each one. What we're going to find out is that these planets are, like all planets, trapped in the gravitational pull of their sun. And just like an astrophysicist can learn about a distant solar system by understanding how the star at the center interacts with the planets that orbit it, so we, by reflecting on the relationship between these three planets and their sun, the sun being verses 21 and 22, so we can gain insight into the events in Mark chapter 2 and the meaning of the sun at its center. As we do so, I hope four things will happen. Number one, I hope that we understand why these planets are here, why these things happen. Number two, I hope that we come to a deeper understanding of the true nature of the sun, that's S-U-N, in other words, the, 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 the true nature of the meaning of verses 21 and 22. Number three, I hope we see the glory of the sun, that's capital S-O-N. I hope we see the glory of the sun shine forth in this chapter like we've never seen it before, like the light of a thousand suns. And number four, I hope we'll be drawn and challenged to worship, worship the sun, that's S-O-N, to worship the sun because he is the only and true gravitational center of all existence. As Colossians 1.17 tells us, in him all things hold together. And all things includes Mark chapter 2 and you and me as well. The sun, S-O-N, the sun was shining brightly, but no one had a clue. Before we visit the planets, let's take a quick look at the sun at their center. As I said, verses 21 and 22. I hope you can read along with me. These two verses are two short parables with which Jesus responded to a question. The question is back in verse 18. And the question was, why did John the Baptist's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus gave three answers to this question. All of them were short parables. None of them are what you might call direct answers. The first answer is about a wedding party. At first glance, its meaning seems obvious. Jesus says, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom and my disciples are the attendants. This time that we have together is a time of joy. In effect, we're having a party and people don't fast at parties, right? They eat. 
Now there's more to that parable than what I just said, and we'll come back to that a bit later. But on the surface, at least, it would seem that Jesus is at first responding somewhat directly and commonsensically to the question posed to him. But then, right at the point where you'd expect the denouement, right where you'd expect Jesus to wrap it all up, put a nice, neat bow on it, and say, folks, this is what I'm trying to tell you. This is what it's all about. Jesus says this. Verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine and the skins as well. <clears throat> but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. That's Mark 2. Now, I'll be honest with you. Reading this casually, when I get to these verses, my first response is, huh? You, you lost me there. I think I missed something. Let me, let me read that again. No, wait. Let me back up five or ten verses and read the whole section again. Maybe if I can get a running start this time, it'll make sense. If I try to imagine being there, listening to Jesus answering the Pharisees, I can almost see people's faces. They're listening intently, waiting to see how Jesus responds to the challenge laid down by their teachers. They're tracking with what he's saying at first, or at least they think they are. My disciples cannot fast, Jesus says in verse 19, because the bridegroom is with them. Right? It's like a party. As I said before, nobody fasts at a party. Jesus is saying, come on, you old fuddy-duddy teachers of the law. Get with the program. It's party time. And then Jesus starts talking about new things and old things and holes in clothes and bursting wineskins. And I can see the people's faces in my mind. You know that look, the look people give you when they don't understand what you're saying, but they think they're supposed to understand what you're saying? And their eyes get wide, their jaws go a bit slack, they start shaking their heads. Right, they say. Profound, amazing. And they have no clue what you're talking about. I think that's what happened here. They had no clue what Jesus meant. The sun, S-U-N, was shining brightly, but no one had a clue what it meant. And the sun, S-O-N, was shining brightly too, but no one had eyes to see him for who he was. This wouldn't be the only time that people had difficulty tracking Jesus' parables. If you turn over a couple pages to Mark 4, 13, you'll find Jesus after telling uh, the crowd a parable, asking his disciples, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? And he goes on to explain the parable the parable there, the par that's the parable of the sower. He explains it in detail. But we don't have such an exp explanation here. So there's a tendency for us to isolate these two verses, 21 and 22. The new cloth, the old cloth, the new wine, the old, the old and new wineskins. And we start pouring meaning into them. There's a tendency to try to solve the puzzle of their meaning by looking to maybe other scriptures or common sense or our own imagination. And we quickly forget, we quickly forget that Mark uh, and Matthew in chapter 9 and Luke in chapter 5 and 6 too, they recorded these parable, parables in a context. It's a context, a very specific context that Jesus intentionally created, he engineered by doing and saying some very specific things. Jesus put these specific things around these two verses, 
21 and 22, he put the three planets around this sun because they all track with the gravity of its significance. So let's visit each of these planets. And as we do, let's keep verses 21 and 22 in mind. Old cloth, new cloth. There's no point in patching the old with the new. Old skins, new skins. You need new skins for new wine. What does this mean? Let's look at these planets. On each one, we'll discover something old, something new, and something true. And all the while, we'll be worshiping the someone true who makes all things new. So, the old covenant, the new covenant, and the only and true atonement. The old covenant, the new covenant, and the only and true atonement. This is planet one. We're going to begin our exploration here. Verses 1 through 13 of Mark chapter 2. Here we find the familiar story of Jesus' healing the paralytic. Four men come to Jesus' home and they're desperately seeking Jesus' help for their friend who is paralyzed. They can't get to Jesus because his home is filled to overflowing with people listening to his teaching. So they go up on the roof, dig an opening in it above Jesus, and lower their friend down on his stretcher. And Jesus heals the paralytic. The man gets up, picks up his stretcher, and walks out of the house. And everyone, verse 12, everyone, verse 12, it says, is amazed. The word is amazed. We have never seen anything like this, they say in verse 12. But the people were amazed over the wrong thing. Yes, the physical healing of this man was amazing. But Jesus did something exceedingly more amazing. Before he gave life to this man's limbs, he gave life to this man's spirit. That's in verse 5 when he says to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now this did not amaze the crowd. However, there was a group among them who were amazed at Jesus' words, not in the sense that they thought that what Jesus said was wonderful, but in the sense that they believed that Jesus had just insulted the Lord God. We see that in verse 6. Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're half right. The scribes were experts in the law. And they were right, only God can forgive sins. And here's the something old on this planet, the old covenant. The law in which the scribes were experts was the Mosaic law. That law was part of the old covenant, the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. There God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law, and having given it, we can read what he said in Exodus 34, verse 27, having given the law, the Lord said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. This covenant defined the people's relationship with God. If they abided by it, they would enjoy blessing and fellowship with God. If they broke it, their fellowship with God would be broken and his wrath would come upon them. We can see these terms clearly laid out in Leviticus 26. I'm going to read a few select verses starting in verse 3 of Leviticus 26 where God says, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments, I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you and I will confirm my covenant with you. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. But 
Verse 14, if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies and those who hate you will rule over you. I will also bring upon you a sword which will execute vengeance for my covenant. And I will send pestilence among you so that you shall be delivered into enemy hands. Then I will act with wrathful hostility against you and I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. This old covenant and these terms were in place that day as the paralytic was lowered before Jesus. They were firmly ingrained in these scribes' minds. Keep the covenant and be blessed. Break the covenant and be cursed. Obviously then, this man, or perhaps his parents, had sinned against God. This was the common wisdom of the day. We see it, for example, in John 9-2, where Jesus and his disciples encounter a blind man. And Jesus' disciples ask Jesus, Teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? So the scribes would not have been surprised that this paralytic needed to have his sins forgiven. He was obviously cursed by God, right? But how should this man go about being forgiven? Well, we can go back to the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant laid out detailed provisions for the atonement of sin. We can find the laws in the book of Leviticus. Depending on the offense, the guilty party is to bring a bull or a lamb or a goat or a ram to the altar. He's to lay his hands on the animal's head as a symbolic gesture of identification with the animal as if to say, it is my sin and my animal which I now give in my place to pay the price that I owe God. Then the animal is killed. The priests apply its blood to the altar. The animal's fat is removed and the priests offer it up in smoke on the altar. And then we look to the law and we read repeatedly in the first few chapters of Leviticus. For example, uh, Leviticus 4, verse 35 says, Thus, thus the priest shall make atonement for the sinner in regard to his sin which he committed. And he will be forgiven. The priest shall make atonement for the sinner and he will be forgiven. According to the law, the Old Covenant, forgiveness required a priest to serve as mediator between God and the offender. According to the law of the Old Covenant, forgiveness required a sacrifice. The sacrifice was to be made to God because it was God's law that had been violated and God's covenant that had been broken. Though others may have been wronged and those wrongs did need to be addressed, ultimately, it was God against whom the offense was committed. And so ultimately, only God could forgive. According to the law, the Old Covenant... Forgiveness came from God. Thus, forgiveness, as I just said, required a priest, required a sacrifice, and required God's granting of forgiveness. But here comes Jesus. And he just says, Son, your sins are forgiven. This is the something new. The something new on this planet, number one. Just a word from Jesus, and this man's sins are forgiven. No priest. No sacrifice, no God. But that's not quite true, is it? Before he healed this man of his paralysis, he told everyone why. Jesus said, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. He does not contradict the statement that only God can forgive sins. Instead, he asserts his authority to do the forgiving. 
From whence does this authority derive? The question comes. And the authority derives from the facts that there is a priest, there is a sacrifice, and it is God that grants this paralytic forgiveness. As 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us, Jesus is the priest. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator, that's the priest, there's one mediator also between God and man, and who's that priest? The man, Christ Jesus. 1 John 2, 2 tells us that Jesus is the sacrifice. It says that He Himself, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And as John 1, 1 tells us, Jesus, as Mark Harrigan told us last week, Jesus is God. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and that's the Word who became flesh and dwelt among men. That's Jesus. And the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was God. Jesus is the priest. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is God. And so Jesus has authority to forgive sins. As the sacrifice, He's paid the penalty for the sins. As the priest, He's offered up that sacrifice to God. And as God, He has all authority on heaven and earth. This is something new. Something gloriously new. This is the new covenant. The new covenant, as Jesus would say, the new covenant in His blood. So to wrap up, that's planet number one. Jesus is forgiving the paralytic's sins. His assertion of His divine authority in so doing signals that the old covenant is being replaced by the new covenant because Jesus, the true atonement for sins, has arrived on the scene. He can forgive sins because He is God. The old community, the new community, and the only and true bridegroom. This is planet number two. That's verses 14 through 20. Let's visit planet number two. Here we see Jesus calling Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him. Right away, warning bells should go off in your head. We know they were going off in the scribes and Pharisees' heads. You see, on planet number one, Jesus forgave a sinner. And that was bad enough. But now he's calling a sinner to be one of his close followers, one of his disciples. Sinner, quote, unquote. At least that's how the teachers of the law would have characterized Matthew. You may remember Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember how the Pharisee goes up to the temple to pray, how he stood there and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Tax collectors were pretty much at the bottom of the sinner barrel in that culture. And Jesus had just signaled out one of these tax collectors and called him to follow him. But Jesus didn't stop with just Matthew. Verse 15, back to Mark 2, says that many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and with his disciples. For there were many of them and they were following him. And the scribes said in verse 16, why is he eating with, and drinking? Why, excuse me, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Sinners, the unforgiven, the unclean, the detestable, the outcast. You can see this us and them mentality. This is the something old on planet number two, the old community. The old community is the us. We 
keep the law. They break it. We are the covenant keepers. And them, they are the covenant breakers. They are outside the old community. And the scribes see Jesus reaching out to the them, the covenant breakers. He's eating and drinking with them, spending time with them, and calling them to follow him. And he even seems to be encouraging their lawless ways. He's encouraging them to eat and to drink and not to fast. So comes the question in verse 18, we already mentioned. Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So we see that the old community was being run like an exclusive country club. If you wanted to belong to it, you needed to make the grade. And this really, this questioning, it really reveals the ground upon which the scribes based their relationship with God. It was based on their own keeping of the law. And so they had a very high view of their own faithfulness to the covenant. And as a consequence, a very low view of the mercy of God. So it made perfect sense to them that they should be part of the blessed community and that tax collectors and sinners should not. But I love how Jesus just answers them in this. Look, how, look what he says in verse 19. We already read it. While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus has turned the tables on them in a major way. Who's in the inner circle now? Who's part of the community? Capital C. It's the attendants of the bridegroom. Those who are not fasting. Jesus' followers. And who is he calling to follow him? The tax collectors and the sinners. This is the something new on planet number two. The new community. The new community is sinners whom Jesus calls to himself. As Romans 8.30 tells us, those whom he called, he also justified. And, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Romans 8. We see that the members of the new community recognize they can't justify themselves. They can't make themselves right before God by works of the law like fasting. And they can't glorify themselves either. God calls. God justifies. God glorifies. It all depends on God as Paul tells us in Romans 9, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And so this new community has a high view of God's mercy. And it understands it is not by the works of the law that a right relationship with God is attained. Members of this new community know, as Paul says in Titus 3, Titus 3, starting in verse 3, we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. And then I'll inject, we were sinners, all of us. But, we had a sermon about the amazing but in, in Ephesians. There's another but here. But, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, Jesus has appeared here in Mark 2, I'll note. When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but according to His mercy. He saved us according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit 
whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. By His grace, that's His free gift, we are made joint heirs with Jesus. We become part of God's family, not because of what we've done, but because of God's mercy administered to us by God's Spirit who was graciously given to us by God's Son. This is the new community. This is the church. People forgiven because of Jesus' sacrifice. People born anew by the work of His Holy Spirit. It is His presence in us and with us that makes all the difference. You caught that, right? When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. That's exactly Jesus' point here with the bridegroom and His attendants. The kindness of God and His love for mankind has appeared. You see, I went to the Old Testament to see why people fasted. And here's some of what I found. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 3. Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast. Ezra 8, 21. Then I proclaimed a fast here at the river that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey. A fast to seek from God a safe journey. Daniel 9.3 So I gave my attention to the Lord to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I hope you caught the common thread there. They fasted as part of seeking God. In the Old Testament, people fasted to repent, to humble themselves, and the goal was to seek God for mercy, for help, and for His Word. Guess what? The disciples don't have to fast to seek God because God's right there in front of them in bodily form. Remember, too, that this is against the backdrop that God is Israel's husband, Israel's bridegroom. If you're not sure about that, you can check out multiple places. Isaiah 54, verse 5. Jeremiah 31, 32. Hosea 2, verse 7. Or you could turn now and look at Ezekiel 16 where there's a metaphor painted for us where God says to Jerusalem in verse 8 of Ezekiel 16, I passed by you and saw you and behold, you were at the time for love. So I swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. Then, verse 10, I clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor which I bestowed on you. It's a picture of a bridegroom uh, taking up his bride. And God, God is saying, God is Israel's bridegroom. Guess what? Israel's bridegroom, Israel's husband, has come in Jesus to visit her in bodily form. So when Jesus says, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? He's not saying, hey, scribes, loosen up, chill. It's party time. He's saying, there's no need to seek me. I'm right here. He's saying, the bridegroom is with you. 
He's saying, I am the bridegroom. He's saying, I am God. And that's what we see on planet two. We see the old community that thought it could make itself righteous. And we see that that community is done for. We see Jesus has come to build a new community, his church. And he builds that from people, sinners and tax collectors of every nation and tribe and people and tongue. And these people are made righteous not by their works. They're made righteous by the presence and the love of the true bridegroom. And we see once again, Jesus is God. Planet number three, the old king, the new king, and the only and true king. This is the last planet. Planet number three in verses 23 through 28 where Jesus explains his position on keeping the Sabbath. Here the Pharisees see Jesus' disciples walking through some grain fields. They're picking heads of grain from the tops of the grain stalks. They're rubbing away the chaff and they're eating the kernels. So what they're doing is they're harvesting and processing the wheat. This is on the Sabbath, so they're working on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees accuse them, therefore, of violating the law. Here's something old on planet number three, the old rules. This takes us back again to the old covenant and to the keeping of the law. We can read the law in Exodus 31 and it's quite clear. No work is to be done on the Sabbath. Whoever works is to be put to death. It's that important. The Sabbath is a sign of the covenant between God and Israel. The Sabbath rest reminds Israel that it is God who makes Israel holy. And it's traced back to the natural order and pattern that God established from creation. It's that foundational. In Exodus uh, sorry, yeah, Exodus 31, verse 12, we can read that the Lord spoke to Moses and He said, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe My Sabbaths, for this is a sign between Me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day He ceased from labor labor and was refreshed. This is a serious command. And the Pharisees were very serious about keeping it. We know from other confrontations between them and Jesus that they could be hyper-focused even on the smallest requirements of the law. I'm thinking of Jesus chastising them once for giving tithes of herbs and spices. And He said that they did that while neglecting the heart of the law, justice, and the love of God. And here, in their interpretation of the law of the Sabbath, the disciples were violating that law. But Jesus differs with them on this point. Uh, he does differ with them on this point, but he doesn't quibble. If you, if you notice what he says, he doesn't quibble over whether rubbing a few grains of wheat between your hands is actual work. He doesn't quibble over that point. 
It's really amazing where Jesus goes first. He goes to 1 Samuel chapter 21, and that's the story of David fleeing from Saul. At the time, Saul was the king of Israel, though God had already rejected him and had commissioned Samuel to anoint David as the next in line for the throne. But Saul, wanting the kingly line to pass to his son Jonathan and being jealous of the Lord's favor on David, Saul had vowed to kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, loved David as a brother. And Jonathan and David had hatched a plan for David's escape. And David did escape in a hurry with no provisions, neither food nor weapons. And he went for help to the tabernacle of God. And there he asked for food. But the only thing the priest had was the bread of the presence, the show bread, that ceremonial bread that's set aside for the Lord. This bread, it turns out, was replaced every Sabbath. And when David arrived, the priest had on hand the bread that had been removed. There was only one problem. The removed bread, according to the law, was only to be eaten by the priests. In Leviticus 24, the law clearly states, the bread shall be for Aaron and his sons, in other words, priests of the tribe of Levi, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the Lord's offerings by fire. It is his, that is Aaron's and his son's portion forever. Now David was not a priest. He was not of the tribe of Levi. He was of Judah. This bread was not for him. But the priest gave it to him and he ate it. It was a symbolic moment. David, God's chosen king, ate of the 12 loaves that represented the 12 tribes of Israel perpetually set aside to be in the presence of God. It was a sign that God's people would be ruled by God's anointed. God had granted David special authority over his chosen nation. But there's a deeper message here. David, anointed king, is acting also as if he were the priest. In Israel, the priesthood and the kingship were always separate. But students of the scriptures knew there were two exceptions. The ancient priest king, whose name was Melchizedek in Genesis 14, and the promised Messiah. Psalm 110 prophesies of a great king whose scepter the Lord will wield and to whom we will give victory. Uh, he will give victory over all his enemies. <clears throat> but of this king, it also says that the Lord God declares him to be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now I hope Melchizedek is a familiar name to you. If you've been tuning into our First Things Sunday School videos, you'd know all about this. So I'm putting a plug in for those. And we'll pick those back up next week. But if you haven't, uh, you can go ahead and, and check them out on Facebook. I'm going to give a quick summary here. Melchizedek was a priest king to whom Abraham gave a tithe. This was before even the Mosaic Covenant, before the law was instituted, before the priestly line of Levi, long before Levi was even born. And Hebrews 7 tells us that Levi, who was the son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, was still in Abraham when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. So the conclusion that Hebrews draws out of that is that Levi submitted to Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the priest king, was therefore greater than the priestly line of Levi. Psalm 110, speaking prophetically, and Psalm 7, speaking retrospect uh, sorry, Hebrews 7, speaking retrospectively, both tell us that Messiah is of this greater priestly line. The Messiah is of the order of Melchizedek. 
Melchizedek was but a shadow and a type, a forerunner of the true, capital P, priest, capital K, king, the true priest king, Jesus. Jesus, Messiah, both priest and king, was greater than Levi. Hebrews 7-10 through 10 offers an extended explanation of what I just said, of just how great Jesus our high priest is. And I highly recommend you check, check that out. Hebrews 7-10. through 10. But the main point here is that in David's eating of the bread of the presence, we see in David a reflection of the priest king. And Jesus, in his response to the Pharisees, is identifying himself with David. The companions of David, the anointed one, ate the forbidden bread of the presence. Companions of Jesus, the anointed one, ate the forbidden bread of the fields, if you will. This, then, is Jesus' message to the Pharisees. And it is the true reason why David ate the bread and was not struck dead on the spot for taking what was holy to the priests. It's because David was a type of the one to come. David was a type of Christ. And Jesus, Jesus saying, I am the true and the better king, David. I am the true and better king. I pause here just to make sure we catch maybe some of the parallels, maybe all of them. The parallels between David and Jesus. David was fleeing those who would seek to kill him and prevent him from taking his rightful throne. Jesus here is face to face with those who would kill him. You can see that in Mark 3, verse 6. They conspire to kill him. Uh, Jesus here is face to face with those who would kill him in a vain attempt to prevent him from taking his rightful throne. David was of the tribe of Judah. Jesus, the son of David, was of course of the same tribe. David was anointed. Jesus was the Messiah, God's anointed. Mark reminded us last week, that's what Messiah means, anointed. David, the anointed king, for a moment, took on the role of priest. Jesus, the anointed king, is forever our true high priest. David was granted by God special authority over God's people. Jesus is granted by God all authority over the church and over heaven and earth. David was to be king. Jesus always has been, always is, and always will be king. Jesus' message to the Pharisees and to us in bringing up the story of David here is, I am the true and better King David. I am God's anointed. I am king. So here we have another something old on planet number three, the old king, if you will, King David. And we also have something new, the new king, that's King Jesus. But, as has been the pattern on both of the other planets, there's a whole other level. Because Jesus doesn't leave it at I am king like David was king. He says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Remember what we read from Exodus 31. I know it went by fast. But from Exodus 31, what we read about the Sabbath, in verse 13, God said, you shall surely observe my Sabbaths. In verse 15, God said, But on, on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. In verse 17, God said, It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day He ceased from labor and was refreshed. So the question is, whose day is the Sabbath? According to Exodus 31. Whose day is the Sabbath? It's the Lord's. To whom is it set apart? The Lord. Whose covenant is it a sign of? The Lord's. 
Who established the Sabbath at creation? The Lord. And here comes Jesus, verse 27 and 28. And Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. When Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, He's putting Himself in the place of God. And He knows that the Sabbath was made for man, that man might refresh himself. And He knows that not because He read so in Exodus 23.12, which says that the Sabbath was designed to allow servants to refresh themselves, which by the way, would seem to give the disciples a break in terms of having to do absolutely nothing on the Sabbath. But Jesus knows that the Sabbath was made for man, not because he read it in the Scripture. Jesus knows that the Sabbath was made for man because Jesus himself made the Sabbath on the seventh day. He says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am the only and true King. I am God. So, we covered a lot of ground. We did, after all, visit three. Three planets. There was a lot of theology. I hope it didn't wear you out. But now I want to talk about the only and true, that the only and true is our Son. S-U-N. The only and true is our Son. I hope, I hope that you've uh, got this pattern ingrained in your head now. At each planet, we saw something old and something new. Something new replaced the old. And that something new was something better and truer. The something new was in the pattern of the something old, but it had more substance and power, enough to completely replace the old. The power and the substance in each case was the power and substance of the one and only someone true. The one and only someone true. You know his name, Jesus Christ. Just to recap, on planet one, we saw a new covenant that is based on the only and true atonement. The message of the new covenant is that forgiveness is based only on the fully sufficient sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. On planet two, we saw a new community that is based on the love of the only and true bridegroom. The church, the family of God, is the result of the irresistible love of God that comes to us only through Jesus Christ. And on planet three, we saw a new king who was the the one and only true king. His name is Jesus, maker of heaven and earth, the Lord of the Sabbath, the only one in whom we can find our Sabbath rest. And on every one of these planets, we saw the only and true one from whom all these blessings flow. Jesus, our Messiah, the Son of Man, as he refers to himself here. Jesus is God. That's what we saw. All three planets. Same story. Now let's look back at the sun. Verses 21 through 22. No one, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise the patch pulls away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine in the old wineskins. Otherwise the wineskins will burst the skins and the wine is lost and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. The message of Mark 2 is that the new that Jesus is talking about here is the new covenant, the new community, the new king. It is ultimately, if you will, it's himself. So the sun, the S-U-N, at the center of this chapter is really the S 
S-O-N, the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus our atonement, Jesus our bridegroom, Jesus our priest king, Jesus our God. Jesus did not come to patch up the old covenant. He came to make a new one. And to do that, he first fulfilled all of the law for us so that we would no longer be under its curse. He did not come to repair the old community. He came to make a new one, his church, as I said, from every nation and tribe and people and tongue. And he came to love her and give himself up for her so that he might sanctify her and cleanse her and present her holy and blameless. He has not come to quibble over externalities and minutiae of the old rules, but he came to reign and rule as king in our hearts and over all heaven and all earth. And as Lord of the Sabbath, he came to give us true Sabbath rest in him. Hebrews 8.13 says that when he said, I will effect a new covenant, when he said, I will effect a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. The old is obsolete. Hebrews 10.1 says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year after year, make perfect those who draw near. The law can never make perfect those who draw near. The old could never save, never make perfect. And Hebrews 7.22 and 25 say that Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Therefore, He is also able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. So the old covenant cannot save those who, are, who draw near, but Jesus is able to save those who draw near to God through Him. The new, the one and true, Jesus is the only one who can save. Jesus has done something new. And if you notice, it all revolves around Him. The admonition then comes to us today. Do we live like we believe these things? Do we live like we believe these things? Do we live like we believe that the old covenant, that is the old garment, the old wineskins, has been put away? Or are we still trying somehow to earn our salvation? Are we trying to get to heaven by doing good and improving ourselves? And are we, like the Pharisees, still on some kind of treadmill of works? And are we, like the Pharisees, pridefully looking down on those who we think are less holy than ourselves? And on the other end of the spectrum, do we live like we believe that the new covenant, that new cloth, the new wine, is a reality in our lives? That Jesus has truly, once and for all, forgiven us our sins? That He is working even now as only He can to cleanse us? Do we Sabbath in Him? Do we rest in Him? Do we trust in His sovereignty as King over all things? All the things? Or are we constantly running ourselves down? Have we given up on holiness thinking that we can never be like Him? Have we stopped trusting in His power to will and to work in us for His good pleasure and to bring to completion the work that He has begun in us? If we fall into the ditch on either side of the road, if we think too highly of ourselves or too little of His power to make us like Him, either way, what we are really doing is trying to add the new cloth to that old cloth. 
We are trying to pour new wine in the old wineskins. Either way, we're making light of the mercy and the grace and the glory of Jesus. We are devaluing that true atonement. We are rejecting the love of the true bridegroom. We are not submitting to and resting in the reign of the Lord of Sabbath. We are denying the Lordship of Jesus Christ because we are not believing, we are not trusting in the fact that Jesus is God and only He, the one and only true God, has the power and the authority to do away with the old and make all things new. Let's pray. Jesus, I just uh, am amazed at Your Word, how rich and how deep it is. I know we've only really scratched the surface of a single chapter right here. And it's just amazing how it, it has fingers that reach into the Old Testament and into words not written until later in, in Hebrews. Father, we just see how, how connected it is and how it all ties together and how it, it all revolves around Jesus. So Father, we just come to You this morning and we bow our knee to Jesus. Father, if there are those who are hearing me and some of this sounds strange and they don't know Jesus, I just pray that You would open the eyes of their heart that they might know Your love for them, Lord. They might know the sacrifice that Jesus made for them. That they might know Your forgiveness. Father, I pray that they would repent and turn from their sin that You would bring that conviction of that sin to them. That they would humble themselves and seek Your mercy. And we know that You will be found. Father, for, for those of us who do know You, we continually need to be reminded. Don't we? Our pride so easily rises up. Please, You have humbled us in this time. And we, we welcome humbling from You Father, we want to be humble before You. And we recognize that we are fully and wholly dependent on Your mercy, Your grace for every breath that we take, but more importantly, for our eternal security. We thank You that You do grant that. We thank You that You are at work in us to make us like Your Son, Jesus. And we pray that You would fill us with Your Spirit so that we might see You at work that we might cooperate with that and that we might rest rest in You because You are in control. You are our King. You are our Lord. And we just give Jesus all the praise and all the glory. Amen.